on the program is Honesty, and I'll give you Doris B. from Laguna Beach, California. Hi, everyone. I am Doris B., and I am an alcoholic. Uh, I do want to uh, get into the topic of honesty, and I do ultimately want to tell you my sobriety date because I do have one. <laughs> but uh, it, it, it's best if I strive for a little continuity, and uh, even with that emphasis on continuity in my thought, uh, my husband always tells me that he doesn't know why I get nervous because he said I sound so relaxed. He said, but you did lose your continuity a little. <laughs> Bear with me. Uh, he spoke at a very large meeting yesterday. And the night before and that morning, I just said, well, you know, John, you just get up and tell your story. And there's nothing for you to be nervous about. <laughs> and as soon as his meeting was over, <laughs> I started to get nervous about mine. <laughs> And in an effort to keep from focusing on myself this morning, I uh, went to a meeting where uh, a friend of ours who uh, spoke at the newcomers meeting spoke. And I wasn't able to hear all of the last speakers talk, but I heard some of the best sharing I've ever heard in my life. And then I thought, how can I ever say anything that would equal what I heard this morning? So all I can do is start with my story. Um, I had the emotions of an alcoholic from the very first. Uh, I have a friend in New York who, because he's gay in a straight family and heard his father say that Miles was an odd little duck <laughs> when he was very young. No, I didn't hear anybody say I was odd, but I got the feeling that I was an odd little duck. I started going to my parents at an early age having them to, you know, just say, please admit I'm adopted. Uh, I have a brother with the exact coloring I have, uh, very much the same appearance, except my mother used to say wonderful things like, well, little Rex, poor Doris got all the height, and she's big and clumsy, and little Rex got the curly hair, and um, but he's so little. So she did us both in at the same time, in her, in her own loving way. Uh, we, um, I can't um, say that there was any alcoholism in my immediate family. Uh, there was none. My father had a bottle of um, scotch, and he kept it in the top of a cabinet. And he had a drink or two when he came home from work several nights a week, but not every every night. He bought Olympia beer and poured the rest of the quart out if he'd had a glass and a half. I don't know why I bought quarts, but he but he did that. And my mother definitely didn't have a problem. My brother never did anything wrong in his life. <laughs> never. <laughs> never. <laughs> He's 14 years older than I am, so at least it saved me from that envy of having a perfect brother. He did say recently, uh, he's from the South, and he did say recently to my husband and I that he suspected that maybe Sister had a slightly more interest in life. <laughs> but he, he didn't look at it that way when I was growing up. Uh, I prided myself on being a rebel all my life, 
and in about my first 10 years on the program, but I was a slow learner on the program, I didn't hear that that was synonymous with immaturity. And I didn't want to pride myself on immaturity, so today I I say that um, I strive not to be quite as rebellious, but it's still there. Uh, I started drinking at 15. Uh, I always drank for oblivion. I did not just drink to fit in, although I didn't fit in until I drank. But once I started drinking, I liked that oblivion. I was able to do that in my childhood with fantasies, uh, long hikes by myself, and reading. And then when I discovered alcohol, I was able to use that. And that oblivion was very important. It's strange to me because I love life today. And I love people, and I, I want to be close to people, and I want to know what's really going on between us on a one-to-one level or what's really going on with them. But it was so painful to me that uh, at the minute that I found alcohol, I used it to dull my senses. Um, I went to uh, college, and uh, I was I initially thought I wanted to be a veterinarian, and I was on my way to Davis, but I visited a girlfriend in San... That's in California. I visited a girlfriend at Santa Barbara, and we had a fantastic time. And I quickly changed. There was a lot of drinking, a lot of partying. I had not been... I don't think my concept is that I had not been around really warm, loving people until I went to Santa Barbara. I had never known Italians that you know, exuded their their feelings and and I hadn't been around a lot of people that showed their feelings. I hadn't been around enough drinking at all. I mean I was able to come up with a little bit on my own but and and enough to be a blackout drinker from uh, my the inception of my drinking career. But when I got to Santa Barbara that was a different matter. I knew a lot of Italian kids there whose family made their own wine. Uh I am not one of those people that didn't want to grow up to be an alcoholic. I thought it was very glamorous. And uh, I can remember going back and forth from Glendale to Santa Barbara on the club car. And another girl and I looked old enough to drink. And we came back from Easter vacation once. And she said, um, and we both drank a lot. And she said, do you know what happened to me when I got off in Pasadena? I passed out and they called a doctor and he said I was alcoholic. And you know, I told that story as my own for a couple of years because I thought it was tragic and glamorous and exciting. And, you know, that was much easier than being crazy. Uh, it, it was much easier than being dull. It was, it was more interesting to me. Uh, I drank a great deal in college. When I switched from uh, Davis to Santa Barbara, uh, I became a sociology major. You know, I, I, I didn't know how to handle my own life, so I was going to save the world. <laughs> and uh, I uh, I did a real good job in class. I got A's in every subject I liked, in philosophy, sociology, psychology, criminology, probation and parole. And uh, I, I started college at a relatively young age, so I believe that I was picked up for drinking the first time at 18. And uh, because I was a drunken minor and I have a real code of honor, I wouldn't tell who bought the alcohol. Uh, I, I was had to go in front of a board of the dean of women of the school, the head of the Alcoholic Beverage Control Board, the head of the probation department, and the head of ABC. And my father had to come up. And uh, so they had a little talk, and 
I was very flipped, told him I was doing a little field work. And uh, my father said that I would not be apprehended drinking again. And my father, uh, I'm God bless him, I'm really glad that he did this with me. He treated me like an individual all my life, and he taught me to make decisions at a very early age, and he taught me that there were consequences of my decisions, and I was always willing to pay the consequences. I was willing to pay the consequences of drinking right up until when I finally got here, um, and um, so I thought when he said I wouldn't be apprehended that he just meant I'd be too smart to be apprehended. <laughs> of course, uh, it didn't last long. I think it was... Um, VE day, I was arrested again and, and thrown in jail, and, and uh, I've just gotten a lot of trouble in school. And I'd still have these great grades and everything that interested me, but uh, if something didn't, I didn't even show up. And uh, pretty soon, it wasn't necessary to show up. I was pregnant, and I was showing up in a different way. <laughs> and I've never said that from the podium. <laughs> Uh, not so much for my sake, but I feel for my daughter's sake uh, that it's not necessarily something I need to air. She's quite a few thousand miles from here and not in AA. Um, I, um, I just continued to drink every opportunity, and drinking allowed me to cope with life. And I was willing to pay the price. And the price for me was uh, a real self-hatred, certainly uh, great discomfort, and... Um, I anything I did I did with a vengeance I didn't do anything halfway uh, I was a functioning drunk uh, I this is now my honesty is going to start coming in because uh, honesty was uh, stressed strongly in my family and I got one version of honesty and had it down pat and uh, about five years into the program I learned about self-honesty but um, I um, I drank with a vengeance and I screwed up everything I touched, except that part of this Protestant work ethic, um, I was responsible to raise my daughter, and I was a functioning drunk. Uh, I guess I worked hard enough when I was there that uh, I believe I only lost one job uh, in my alcoholism, and I came to AA a year later to have a little look around. And um, I... Um, I held some responsible jobs. I, I handled the public's money. And uh, it's amazing to me uh, that I was able to do that. But that Protestant work ethic was, uh, you know, so strong in our family that um, my feeble efforts were better than a lot of people's best efforts. And uh, I was I managed to hold on for quite a while. I called AA in 1952. Uh, I was in Manhattan Beach. I was drinking and smoking pot. I thought it was real cool. I can remember that I had music playing, television going. Um, no, the television didn't have sound, but the music did. And somehow I had it all figured out that this was all very cool. And um, that very coolness almost took me a little too far. I almost didn't get here. I thought I was... I thought so little of myself, but I still was being cool. Uh, in 1953, I was in a very serious automobile accident. And um, after calling AA in 1952, I, I guess I was afraid they might come, and I hung up. And in 1953, I was nearly killed in an automobile accident. And uh, I was in the hospital for a couple of months. And the, so, some of the injuries were a crushed foot, uh, a uh, demolished kneecap that had to be removed, 
my jaw is broken in eight places. And all I could do, I kept asking him to take another electroencephalograph so that they could find out what was wrong with my brain. And nothing would come back on the brain. I mean, but I was sure they were missing something. And um, the last roommate I had, I loved the people that came to see her. I particularly liked her husband. Uh, but that wasn't anything new with me. I did like men much better than women. And they were talking about the program, and they were talking about the 13th step. That's the first I heard of that. And uh, when toward, my jaws were wired up, and I couldn't eat, and she would say, I hate to eat in front of you. I'd had one tooth knocked out, so I didn't have to be fed intravenously. I could drink through a tube, and I'd said, that's all right. Just don't drink martinis in front of me, and it won't bother me. And somehow during that time period when her AA friends were coming to see her, and my bartender and heavy drinking friends and sociopaths and everything were coming to see me, <laughs> she she saw fit to share with me that I seemed very attracted to she and her husband, particularly her husband. And uh, really only because he had an interesting story. He'd spent more of his life in jail than out. He now has his doctorate in psychology and um, is very big in the field of alcoholism in Northern California. But um, I, uh, she thought maybe I might be interested in AA. So I got home, and with no solid food in my stomach right away, I was pretty careful about my drinking. I drank beer through a tube through this through this um, tooth that had been knocked out. And I had a code of honor. I didn't drink martinis until somebody else showed up to drink them with me. And uh, so, needless to say, I was right back in trouble very rapidly. And I went to my first AA meeting in 1953. And I loved it. I was so happy to find out that what I was, that I had a niche in this world, that I was an alcoholic. And uh, that I hadn't just been this sleazy person that couldn't pull it together somehow all over my life. Um, I also see I've only got five minutes. And um, I think I've got five minutes. Um, I didn't... Um, I, I, I readily admitted I was alcoholic. But we were told in those days that to drink was to die. Or that you would go crazy or die or be incarcerated. Well, I had had my suicide attempts by that time and dying held no fear for me. Being sober did. I required answers of Alcoholics Anonymous that I did not require of sobriety. And um, so I continued to drink for seven years. And I loved the people I met in AA. I'd run into them. I got sober once for five months. And I didn't come in and out, in and out. I stayed away because uh, it was too painful to see people who had it working in their lives. When I, I, I always heaved this big sigh when they'd say constitutionally unable to be honest. And I'd say... That's me. I mean, that was tragic enough for me. And uh, and after lots and lots and lots of uh, bad experiences, I did get, I came to AA December 1st of 1960, and that is my sobriety date. And the, the first thing when I was coerced into taking my first inventory, I didn't have any problem at all with the liabilities, but I had a awfully hard time with the assets and the big joke is that the first asset I was able to write down was honesty I didn't know that that was cash register honesty that was the honesty I was raised with you know if you 
stole something, you admitted it right away. And that if somebody gave you $5 too much, you gave it back. And if you didn't go to school, you admitted it. And so I thought honesty was my my only asset. Eventually, I was able to add loyalty and hardworking. And so that shows you where I was. But um, I was a slow learner in AA, and I'm glad for that. I don't think that it was any mistake. I'd been a quick study in everything else in my life. And everything that came to me easily had no value to me. I threw everything that came to me easily away. Uh, it was, I, I embraced the program, but not as much as I see people embrace it today. And it was five years before I really started to. After a year and a half, I married my husband and he had a better program than I did. He came and surrendered and I did not. And um, we've been married for 27 years now. And uh, I don't know whether I'd have made it if I hadn't been married to somebody with a good program. Because I had a shitty attitude for those first few years. I just had to keep hitting my head against the wall. Uh, the point is that I don't have it now. Uh, I, uh, the program does work for me. The program does work in my life. For a long time I felt like we'd been given so much. It was all, I almost felt guilty when I'd hear of other people's hardships. But I'll tell you, you have a chance to have that level out. <laughs> You've given a real good life, but you're given a few very difficult things to deal with, too. And that's when you really know that the people are there for you. Um, I'm very, very grateful to be here. I, um, I'm very grateful to let you know who I am and what I think, because I do believe you're as sick as your secrets. And unfortunately, I'm one of those people that when I'm really faced with something difficult, my first reaction is to go by myself and figure it out. But I've learned not to do that anymore. I've learned to reach out and to accept the help and to just allow you to carry me when I can't carry myself and hopefully always to be there for you when you need it. I've never had it so good. Thank you. So at this time, uh, our next part of the program is, uh, the subject is openness, and uh, I'm going to ask uh, Charlie B. from Scottsdale, Arizona, if you'll come up. Hi, everybody. My name is Charlie, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm very grateful to be here today, and very grateful to be sober. Um, these guys talk about these sobriety dates. I have one, too. It was uh, three days after. I got married three days after John sobered up. Our friend from Canada sobered up. And uh, 1960, I was still out there amongst them. Still had another 18 years left to go. Uh, my sobriety date is November the 18th of 1978. And uh, I think one of the reasons they asked me to get up here and talk because I've been sober in Alcoholics Anonymous now longer than I was drunk in Alcoholics Anonymous. Cause I went to my first meeting in 1967, and I was rather open-minded about the whole thing, because that's my topic, open-mindedness. We lived in a little town, a big town called Omaha, Nebraska at that time, and Barbara and I had been married at that time about 10 years, and I think our number five son had arrived, and she was going through a little of postpartums, and I was going through a little of the, uh, the restless, irritable, and discontent between drinks. It hadn't been very long. But I was still restless, irritable, discontent. And I went down to the saloon down at the bottom of the hill. I can't remember the name of it. I can't believe I forgot the name of that Snuggly Inn or something like that. One of those real homey places, you know, where everybody just stands around and drinks like crazy. Um, uh, anyway, I went down there for a beer about 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And I was kind of hanging some wallpaper or putting some curtains up or something. I can't remember. 
uh, in one of the rooms, and I left the ladder right in the middle of the room, and I went to have two beers. I came back at 3 o'clock in the morning. And, uh, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was, we, we had kind of a ritual she and I went through. Uh, you know, I would stay gone for a long time, and she would help me pack. She would take a lot of the stuff I needed, and she'd set it out there in the yard, you know, and sometimes she, sometimes she didn't set it real gently. In fact, one morning she got a little carried away and she threw my pants out. And I'd been playing poker all night long. And I had, it was full of quarters and half dollars and it just spread all over the front yard. And I was crawling around out there about 5.30 in the morning. And my father was not too open-minded. He was driving around, you know. And he stopped and he said, what are you doing? And I said, uh, I'm checking for dandelions out here, you know. <laughs> Early, I was a yard man. But uh, that, that one time I went down to see the parish priest. And he was a, uh, uh, one of eight children. And his, he had several brothers and sisters that were alcoholics. You know, the Irish invented alcoholism. And uh, he knew all about it. And he said, Charlie, he said, uh, you may have a little drinking problem. Uh, you ought to go to see those guys at Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, they can fix you up. He says, that barber's a nice lady, but she's not going to take that shit too much longer. And uh, so I did. I went to see those nice people at Alcoholics Anonymous. And it was a little house in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, 4848 or something like that. And it was on, um, they had a, a second floor meeting room. And the ceiling was about six and a half foot high. And I was about 30 at the time. And. I went up there, and I listened to this gal share, and she was from Oklahoma, and she had run a whorehouse down there and had done all kinds of things. And I listened very carefully, and none of the things that happened in her life were happening in mine at the time. So I decided that, that uh, uh, since I was the chairman of the Religious Education Committee at St. Margaret Mary's Church, that it probably wasn't real. I wasn't really an alcoholic. Besides, my grandfather was an alcoholic, and he used to sit down in the basement and drink wine. Thank you for the introduction of the Italian people. I like that. Uh, we did make our own wine, and my grandfather drank most of what he made. Uh, he didn't share a lot. He didn't have a lot of that gregariousness. But he used to sit down there in the basement, and uh, and he'd suck on that wine, and uh, he'd get a little drunk. And uh, he was a heavy man, and we'd have to help him up the steps. And uh, uh, he used to do. He used to get a little violent. He used to get a little carried away. In fact, one day he chased the neighbor down the street with a sword, and the neighbor took it away from him. Damn near killed him. But I mean, that's that's part of the family tree that my mother and my sister aunts don't talk about at all. Uh, in any event, uh, 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 you know, I I uh, I wasn't like Grandpa at all. You know, I drank. I had a little fun. I was one of those guys. The big book says in there that, you know, if uh, if when you start, you don't know when you're going to quit. You know, uh, you might be an alcoholic. And uh, I was not one of those guys that woke up in the morning with a jug under the bed. Uh, I was not one of those guys that drank every day of the week. Uh, I was not one of those guys that had the shakes. I was one of those guys that when I started drinking, I wasn't sure when I was going to quit. You know, uh, I was sober maybe three, four years. And I heard a guy share one time. He talked about the fact that the normal person, when they take a drink, you know, they kind of mellow out and smooth down a little bit. I got real open-minded when I started drinking. You know, I, I wanted to go maybe at, you know, all, you know, the 50 saloons and, and meet people I'd never met before and go places I'd never been before and do things I'd never done before and, and have an opportunity to let the outside in, you know, and, and, uh, and find out what life was all about. Uh, I was very open-minded about drinking. There was no doubt about it. I remember I remember sitting across the table from a guy one time who was drinking a Heineken's. I thought, God, that stuff's wonderful. I drank 46 of them. <laughs> you know, I remember one time, you know, it says in the big book that we will go to any length to stay drinking. And I remember being very, very impressed with the martini. God, I thought they were just wonderful. I love the salty taste of those olives, you know, and the juice that they put in them. And it was just great. And, and so I ordered a martini and, and uh, God, it was wonderful. And uh, I drank a couple, two or three of them, maybe four, I don't know. And, uh, you know, when you drink martinis, you're different than beer drinkers. I don't know whether you guys experienced that, but I was... I was kind of a guy that I just kind of got into whatever it was I was drinking, and and I and I got into these martinis real well, and I went home, and everybody was in bed. It was really late, and I decided that I was going to fix myself something to eat, but I wasn't just going to you know boil up a hot dog or make a sandwich or do something. I was going to do something really classy, so I got out of a pan and I boiled some eggs, and I was going to make a shrimp salad. Is what I was going to do, and I got started with it, and I got a little tired, you know, and I went in the living room to rest just a couple of minutes. You know, and I woke up about six o'clock in the morning, and the pan was welded to the stove. And, 
and, and, and I gave up on martinis. I thought that's not the answer. But uh, I got really open-minded, and they talked about Pernod, you know, and uh, I can remember I can remember being, you know, very obsessed with things, just always very obsessed. I mean, if, if, if it was something that we were going to try out uh, in a little town in Sioux City, Iowa, and uh, didn't graduate from college. We got married kind of early, and, and college was tough for me. I mean, you know, uh, I'm, I was pretty open-minded, and some guy would say, let's go down to Baxter's and have a beer, and I'd go with him, and we'd come back, and he'd say, some other fellow would say, let's go, you know, to the homey inn, and I'd go to the homey inn, and then somebody would say, let's play cards, and I played cards, and somebody would say, let's go to class, and I'd say, I'm a little busy. And, <laughs> but I, it came easy for me. I, I appreciated what you had to say. I, uh, you know, I never had to work very hard to get grades or to me. I just had to show up, and, and I showed up the required number of times eventually and did graduate, but I lived in that little town, and I went to work for the phone company there, and, and uh, did good with the phone company, and they moved me to Omaha, and did good with the phone company there, and I quit. You know, I thought they were going to catch up with me. I really did. I was sure I was padding my expense accounts. We got $5 a day for working overtime. If you were a management guy, and I worked the, you know, I didn't really work the overtime. I just turned in the expense account, and I'd go to the office bar across the street and drink a beer for a quarter and a shot for 50 cents to hamburger for two bucks and write three bad checks and go home at 4 o'clock in the morning. But it was kind of a bad deal. But, uh, but you know, uh, uh, I, I got to a job selling computers. And if you could uh, carry a pencil and talk, you could sell computers to people in those days. And, and I and I progressed a lot faster than I thought I would. And we got a lot of things that, uh, a lot of good material kinds of things. And, and uh, at the time, the drinking was kind of catching up with me. And, and uh, we moved up to Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I thought I died and went to heaven because Minneapolis is a beautiful town. And we lived on a beautiful lake up there. And we had a really nice house. And everything was being really wonderful. Except this little problem that I'd had drinking, I'd kind of taken with me. We had moved 20-some times before we moved up to Minneapolis. I was real big on geographics. You know, I thought if we just switch blocks, you know, it'd be better. If we could switch towns, it'd be better. If we could switch neighborhoods, if we could switch something. I was open to change. And uh, <laughs> someone suggested Alcoholics Anonymous. And again, you know, in uh, 1973 or something like that. And I stayed sober for about 90 days. I mean, it was wonderful. I went to one meeting a week. And I uh, got there a little late and left a little early because I had a lot of things to do. And uh, I had a sponsor. And one day I called him up and I wanted to talk to him because I was getting real paranoid without drinking. You know, if you're, if you're drunk and you're not drinking and you don't have a program, you get real paranoid. And uh, a little restless, irritable, and very discontent. And uh, I went to talk to this guy and uh, he suggested the steps and I suggested to him that uh, it was a good idea. And uh, I was going to Europe. And as soon as I got back, I talked to him about it. And uh, I was on the plane. And uh, I thought to myself, you know, it can't hurt to have one beer. You know, it really can't hurt to have one beer. And I did. I had one beer, and God, it was wonderful. I had another one. And uh, checked into a hotel and uh, kind of wandered around a little bit. I had three or four beers, and it was just marvelous. Went to bed, and I thought, man, this is a Charlie of old. You know, I'm able to handle this. I, that, that rest, what I needed was a rest from that alcohol. And uh, I rested and uh, went to Europe. And uh, about four or five days later, I was crawling around on the floor of the hotel room. I mean, I was more blasted, more hammered than I'd ever been in my life. I mean, I couldn't believe how much I drank. And when they talk about progression going on, whether you're drinking or not, they're right. You know, uh, and uh, by now, things were starting to change, and I was getting not friendly drunk. I was getting bad drunk, you know, like angry, like Grandpa. I only I didn't have a sword. And uh, <laughs> thank God I'd have got killed. Uh, in any event, uh, that went on for another three four years. And uh, I ended up in a treatment center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I uh, went in on February the uh, 14th or 17th or whatever it was, and I got out St. Patrick's Day. And that was just wonderful, you know, to be, be in there with all those damn Irishmen, you know. And, and there were quite a few Swedes in there. There's a lot of Swedes and Norwegians in that the treatment center. That's right. That's, that's right. They had a, uh, in fact, the Palestinian terrorist, Yashir Bagash, was in there with I. <laughs> he was in there. But they had a standard story. They said that the Irish invented whiskey and that the Norwegians invented rape and terror after they stole it from the 
from the Irish. But in any event, uh, I ended up in that treatment center. I was there 28 days. And uh, by that time, I had a pretty good job. I was pretty, pretty, pretty uh, uh, big shot, really, you know. And uh, I called my office and had him bring over a volleyball and a, and a baseball bat and some softball so that we could start to play ball when it warmed up. And I had food catered in and because uh, <laughs> the food wasn't real good. And I kept Barbara away from that place. My God, I didn't want her to find out what the hell I was doing. And uh, they had, they'd put these guys in this chair in the middle of the room and they'd have to tell their wives what they'd been doing all their lives. And I thought, my God, if they do that, I'm going to jump out the window, you know. But, you know, uh, uh, I stayed sober 15 months after that uh, because uh, I thought that I had, uh, had, it, had it whipped. Uh, they talked about uh, getting in touch with your feelings, and, and I knew about how does that make you feel stuff. I knew all the buzzwords. I, in fact, I was going to apply for a job as a senior counselor when I got out of there, and just supervising maybe five or six counselors and 20 or 30 people, try to help them. And uh, I got out and uh, stayed sober 15 months and went to maybe two meetings in the whole period of time. And 15 months later, there was a little turmoil in our lives because I was living just exactly drunk or sober like I was drunk, and that was bad. You know, I, my partners by now had fired my ass, and I was off doing something different. And, uh, you know, my marriage wasn't getting a hell of a lot better. In fact, it was getting progressively worse because at least there was an excuse when I was drinking. When I was sober, there was no excuse for being an asshole. I just was one, you know. And I think you all understand that. My cousin sent me a tape the other day, and I just couldn't believe it. And the, and the lyrics, the first line are, were you born an asshole or have you been that way all your life? <laughs> just my own flesh and blood, for Christ's sake. <laughs> but... Uh, Fifteen months, and uh, sober and crazy, and uh, crazier than hell, and uh, uh, I walked uh, into a bar to have a drink, and I drank a beer, and I didn't know, I thought, this is all right, you know, Barbara's going to divorce me now, I can drink, I you know, understand what you said, and it uh, didn't work, you know, the uh, I drank to have fun, you know, and it, I wasn't having any fun when I drank, I mean, it was just like instant depression. You know, and I tried to struggle through three or four beers, and I couldn't. And uh, I called the treatment center, and they let me back in for six weeks this time. And I tested worse on the MMPI than I did when I came in uh, 15 months earlier. Crazier, more manic, depressive, uh, extremely guarded. I went from guarded to extremely guarded as far as prognosis from recovery that 15-month period. But uh, uh, I got out of that place uh, six weeks later and uh, got drunk again after another month. And uh, Barbara was going to divorce me, and six months later I ended up in a halfway house in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I started going to a meetings. And, uh, uh, you know, I talk about uh, willingness, uh, pleasure. You know, it was a pleasure for me to be there because there was no pleasure for me anywhere else in the world. I mean, nobody wanted me around. I was in business with my dad and my kids, and they didn't want me around. And I had, uh, you know, Barbara didn't want me around. Nobody wanted me around. So I was in that uh, halfway house, and I got uh, real, real, real willing, real willing, because I was scared to death I was going to kill myself. I hadn't, hadn't thought about suicide much until the last two or three months before I went in the halfway house, and I was thinking about it a lot. And uh, I had a, a sense of hopelessness. Uh, it says in the big book that uh, some of us are constitutionally incapable of being honest with ourselves, and we might not make it. And uh, I thought I was one of those guys. And uh, all of a sudden, for some strange reason, I started listening. I started listening. Uh, I was scared shitless. That's why I started listening. And uh, what happened after that was uh, was really very interesting. Uh, uh, I can identify with what Doris talked about. I've been sober 11 years, and uh, and I'm one of those guys that was very, very, very reluctant to let go of old behavior. Uh, you know, there's a joke that says, uh, you know, who's got the longest memory in the world, an elephant or a Sicilian or a Sicilian elephant? And it isn't any of those. It's a Sicilian al um, <laughs> Notice, Notice, Barbara, I did not say Irish. But, uh, you know, uh, in any event, uh, uh, for me, open-mindedness has been very, very difficult. Uh, you know, I'm one of those guys that uh, I hang on to everything inside. I'm just like, you know, just it was interesting what Doris said. You know, when things get tough, I tend to go off in a corner by myself and just kind of stew. And uh, uh, openness for me means something a little bit different. You know, I, I, uh, I'm glad they called it who? Willingness, because I had to be willing to come in 
and uh, uh, honesty. I had to be honest enough to take a look at myself, and open-mindedness. I had to be, uh, you know, let some of this stuff come in. But for me, I had to let the shit out first. You know, that was the tough part. You know, I would go to meetings and I would hear about things, but I still had a lot of my old thinking in there. A very, 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 very conservative kind of person, even though I didn't think I was conservative. I mean, I, you know, I, I marched with the Martin Luther King people in Omaha. You know, I did all those real liberal kinds of things. You know, they, they, they were going to, you know, I mean, I really was, uh, you know, right, at, right, at, right on the front line up there, you know, with the, with the Vatican II conference and the Catholic Church and really liberal thinker, but so damn unwilling and rigid inside to change any of those thoughts or change any thought. And uh, the thought, the concept of forgiveness, for me, is very foreign, you know. I mean, we know, have a Sicilian way of handling forgiveness, and they make movies about it, and, and, and it's true. You know, it really is true. I mean, that's what they teach you how to do, and when they teach you how to do things, you know, it's real hard to, uh, to say. I have, I have a sponsor today. It took me ten years to get a sponsor. Um, I had one. He died. And uh, it was unfortunate. It was, a, it was a great man, a good man, a very good man who had varices, you know, and they kept opening him up and putting new arteries in. And, and uh, he finally bled to death. And that was the saddest thing. I mean, that was alcoholism, pure and simple. And then I had another one I wouldn't listen to. Uh, you know, we spent a lot of time uh, going to meetings together and we spent a lot of time uh, doing 12-step work. And God, it was wonderful. But I did not listen to one thing the man said because I had this thing, this program in here that was going round and round. And finally something hit me on the head real hard. And, uh, and I started to, uh, uh, to think a little bit. Um, not for myself, but the way you were teaching me how to think. And my sponsor said, you know, Charlie, he said, you know, you have to adopt an attitude that if there's something wrong, that if, uh, if there be a fault, let it be mine. And I thought, I can't do that. You know, I just can't do that. It's just real hard for me to do it. And I've, I, I don't do it all the time now. Believe me, I don't do it all the time now. But uh, I do it a little bit. I do it enough now to be dangerous, maybe. Uh, and, and, and my life is changing. You know, my life is finally changing. You know, I, I didn't lose much in sobriety. I mean, I lost a lot in sobriety. Uh, I could have, you know, my partners, my first partner sold out for mega million dollars, and I could have been, you know, happily retired now. And, uh, but I didn't. I came in and, and, uh, and into Alcoholics Anonymous, and I still had a lot left. And, uh, and, and I made a lot of money in sobriety. And uh, something happened, and a hell of a lot of it went away, and it was real hard for me. It was real hard for me, but I stayed sober. You know, not only did I stay sober, but, I, but something happened in that process that I want to share with you. You know, there are things in life that are important. And when I first sobered up, the only thing that was important to me was my sobriety and the people in Alcoholics Anonymous. There's two of my very, very good friends here today, you know, uh, uh, that were with me in that little stinking town in Iowa where I sobered up with. And, and one of them was the most open-minded guy I ever met. He came, he came into Alcoholics Anonymous, and he wanted to kill his wife, you know. And after two or three meetings, he decided all he wanted to do was break her legs. And I thought, Jesus, <laughs> this program really works fast. <laughs> but that's his story, and he'll have to tell you that. But, you know, but what I've learned, you know, what I've learned as a result of being around here and, and being here is that, that what really counts, uh, Barbara and I have six children. Uh, my daughter uh, got married about uh, a year ago, and she has a little baby. And uh, that little baby's our first grandson. And I was in uh, Dallas, Texas when that little boy was born with that little girl. And I want to tell you something. There's anything in the world like that. There's nothing in the world like it. Nothing I experienced in the prior 51 years of my life was like sitting there watching my daughter have a baby and being sober, you know. And, and I mean, God, you know, what, what the hell more can you want, you know? I was nuts and I used to want a lot more things, but not, not all I wanted at that time was to be with that baby and to be with that girl. Uh, we have three other sons that are sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, one of them has been sober 10 years. The other one's been sober one month less than 10 years. And I have one who was arrested for going 130 miles an hour past the Camelback Inn in Phoenix, Arizona in the middle of the night. And uh, he had made a key for my car, and uh, uh, he, was, he was out there doing it. 
and uh, uh, he's got five years of sobriety today. Uh, and uh, those, 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 kids, those kids go to meetings together and have fun together. And we have a life that I never dreamed possible. And you can't buy that with money. There is no amount of money in the world. In fact, the matter is, when I got really into trying to make some money when I was in this program, I turned into an asshole. That's why my cousin sent me that letter, I think. <laughs> but I really did. You know, I took it back. I really did. You know, when things were going along well and everything was working, you know, and I let, you know, let go and let God, it was great. But when God started giving me some things, I said, God, if I don't handle this, this law will slip away. And uh, uh, my sponsor, you know, said to me, he said, you know, you just have to, you just have to take it easy. That's all. You just have to trust God. And uh, uh, that's maybe the openness. You know, maybe the openness today is, is uh, letting go of the resentments, letting go of the fear, letting go of the anger, letting go of all those old shitty ways of thinking that got me into so much trouble, those lousy ways of behaving, and starting to behave in a positive manner. You know, starting to behave like, uh, uh, you know, like, like a normal, regular kind of a human being. And to have friends, uh, and to have friends in Alcoholics Anonymous. This is a real thrill for me. I mean, this is really a thrill. I mean, I can't imagine that uh, going from extremely guarded when they let me out of uh, that place. I used to go to AA meetings in Fort Dodge, Iowa, and I used to report on how much I drank between meetings and let the folks know that I was doing better or worse, depending on how drunk I got between meetings. And they told me when I got to, got to high school that my IQ was extremely high, and I had a real good, you know, kind of a opportunity to go. And I had been in treatment for ten weeks. And been in, uh, you know, been going. I mean, I'd been around everywhere, and I didn't realize that you weren't supposed to drink between meetings. I mean, I just, I understand. But guys, I think you know. Uh, I think you all know about uh, about what we're talking about up here about willingness and honesty and open-mindedness. And I think that the greatest thing in the world, you know, is uh, is, is for all of us being together. And I'll share one thing with you before I leave. There's a a, a famous uh, author and a Dominican priest and theological scholar by the name of Matthew Fox. And Matthew is so slick that the Pope shut him up for a year, told him you can't preach or talk to anybody anymore because you're a heretic. And uh, Matthew is into creation psychology, talks about their or creation spirituality, talks about the Big Bang, you know, and uh, talks about the commonality and the unity uh, of people and uh, the, our psychic, our common psychic. And I was at a lecture that he was giving, and he got he was up there and he was talking about what it needs, what's going to take for the world to make it. And he said, what it's going to take for the world to make it is the kind of thing that those folks are doing in Alcoholics Anonymous, loving one another, caring about one another, and supporting each other. And at that moment in time, I thought, for Christ's sake, I, I might make Pope. You know? <laughs> I guess it's time for questions. So uh, uh, our, our uh, host left. And uh, I, I'm glad he told me why. God, can you imagine somebody getting up, the chairman getting up and walking up? <laughs> Spend your whole damn life getting ready for a meeting and the chairman leaves. <laughs> okay, uh, questions, and I think we'll uh, direct them to whoever you want to direct them to, and we'll just go. Go ahead. No, I think I'm going to learn, though. <laughs> <laughs> What's your name, by the way? David. <laughs> David. Hey, David. Yeah, and if you want to share some interesting antidote or uninteresting antidote about open-mindedness, willingness, or honesty, we'd appreciate it. Okay. There's no other reason. Um, we lived in this little town in Iowa, and why God stuck us there, I didn't even sell cheesecake on Sunday. I mean, we... <laughs> That's how terrible it was there. And uh, Harvey, who got up and talked and uh, shared, uh, we, it, there's only 20,000 people there, and they were all around all the time. And, and there was constantly AA people around our house and around our life. And my children learned that that was a better life than the life that they had out there in the bars. And it was uh, probably, we had to ask one of them to leave the house. 
definitely. He'd come home at 3 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning on his motorcycle. I mean, he's smoking dope and shooting PCP and, and, and all that crap, and I'm going crazy. And Barbara, you know, had many years in Al-Anon, and she just kind of say, why don't you just let it, you know, and I didn't understand what the hell she was talking about. So for me, it was very, very difficult. For her, it was difficult also. I'm sure, you know, and she can speak for herself, but she had, she had a program that was teaching her how to let go, and I, had a, and, and I was still trying to control these guys. But Joe came into AA first, uh, and he came in, and he said, and has said at many meetings, that the reason that he came into Alcoholics Anonymous was because when he was in the bar, he saw the same guys sitting at the bar with the big noses telling the same stories over and over again, night after night. And he saw my friends sitting around, not drinking, lying and cheating, you know, playing cards, and calling each other names, and doing all the terrible things that you do, but sober as hell. You know, and, and, and he liked that life a hell of a lot better than the other life. One of my other boys uh, is down in Laguna Beach now. Uh, boy, and that's a wonderful place for him to be. Can't thank you folks down there enough for what you've done for Chuck. But, but uh, Chuck's had a tougher time in sobriety. He's been sober 10 years. And Chuck left the house, uh, you know, under a little duress. He was very emotional. He went up to Minneapolis, and he ran into a friend of mine up there. And the friend took him in. He stayed with Chuck, and he, he got Chuck sober. He was Chuck's first sponsor. You know, and uh, uh, it, it, we didn't do anything. We didn't have to do anything. All we had to do was pray and trust, and it worked. You know, and the and the last one, the last one didn't have any choice. I mean, his brother's just kind of, you know, that's it for you, guy. You know, he was real willing, real real willing. Hi, Loda. Charlie, you say you were in the hospital and, and you, you were diagnosed manic and all this. Was that just because of the alcoholism or was that something separate? It's hereditary. It runs in the family. No. <laughs> you know, it, 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 was, it, it was part of the... I went into alcoholism treatment program and I took this test and it was borderline manic depressive and I understand what they're talking about. You know, I get higher than a kite and lower than low. You know, but, you know, AA helps me smooth it out and uh, I wasn't... Uh, uh, you know, they, they did... There were people that came into that place that they sent somewhere else, you know, because they were nuts, you know, instead of drunks, I think. But, uh, you know, the manic depressive has been there all the time, and, and uh, I've had, I've had quite a, quite a, quite a struggle with it, you know. I've had to learn how to, I've had to learn how to moderate my living, and it's been very hard. Oh, so that's something else besides alcoholism that's not a result of alcoholism? I can't answer that. Yeah. I mean, I really can't help it. You know, I, I, you know, I, I've always been a little high and a little low. You know, I'm very emotional. I'm very passionate. You know, I'm very, very much this. And I'm, I'm sure that as a result of drinking for 20 years, you know, and getting myself into some horrible, you know, fixes and jams and, and, and you know, the guilt and all that kind of stuff, I'm sure that I drove my emotions lower than they'd ever been. You know, and I'm sure that I, you know, I'm sure I got, and I'm sure that that had something to do with it. But uh, how sure, I don't know.